on this episode of Hear Tell. We meet characters full of passion, violence, and desire, and visit communities across the U.S. and Global South, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, the Florida coast, and a Maya community in Mexico. You say you're going to introduce me to violence? I'm very comfortable with violence. Sean was an orange, incredible Hulk. He sunbathed in a fluorescent string bikini, hoping his freckles would merge into a tan. Speed along that dotted yellow line until it unites. Meander beyond the fish hatchery and the old schoolyard. Beyond those back roads into a dense green wilderness. Shaking hands, sitting next to each other, too much eye contact. These were Kashlan ways that were normal between mestizo men and women. But among Maya suggested there was something going on. My name is Andre Gallant. And I'm the host of Hear Tell, a podcast about true stories and how they get told. This episode is the second in a two-part series featuring short narratives written and read by current students in the low-residency MFA and narrative nonfiction program housed in the Grady College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. If you listen to the previous episode, you'll know that, due to the coronavirus, we're recording and producing the show remotely from the safety of my home and the homes of our guests. Our readers today are Allison Miller, Will Alford, Sierra Williams, and Stephanie Palladino. The essays they're going to read were composed as brief, narrative-style reflections during their coursework over the past year. Some stories are directly related to book projects students are working on. Others are one-off creative flourishes. Each one shows how the craft of narrative nonfiction is studied and applied in the MFA program. To start us off, here's Allison Miller with a profile of an independent wrestler with an authentic flair for drama. Pro wrestling's late 80s, early 90s heyday, no wrestler, not even one on the indie circuit like Jamie Holmes, would have let a reporter behind the curtain. Before he agreed to being interviewed, he asked Justin a question only someone in the wrestle sphere would understand. Is this a shoot shoot? Is this a work shoot? Or is this a complete work? Aces in the pro wrestler's vocabulary deck, born of early 20th century carnival speak, Back then, carnivals pitted strong men against cuckshore spectators eager to prove themselves under the big top. If the amateur could last 15 minutes in the ring or take out the big guy before then, he'd win a cash prize. Like human bull riding with the bull in cahoots with the boss. To keep the audience interested, the prize fighter pretended to reel with every punch. The real kicker? The spectator worked for the carnival too. The whole thing was a work. Justin answered Jamie's question. The interview was a shoot-shoot. 100% unscripted, real life. Six days before the October casket match, I sat with Jamie and his wife, Rachel, at their dining room table on a Sunday afternoon. Displayed on the Lazy Susan, where a fruit bowl or vase or salt and pepper shakers would be in any other home, laid a title belt. The opposite of its gilded TV screen brethren, this trophy garment 
was grotesque, amateur, odd. Jamie fashioned it himself by cutting chain to waste width and etching crude script into an old circular saw blade he had rusted with vinegar. Then he filled in the letters with a red paint pen, SVW Hardcore Title Champion. It's not the only thing he's concocted in his backyard. In professional wrestling, it's the personalities, not the acrobatics, that pop the top on our emotions. We want to see jealousy, fear, rage, because we want to feel them too. To keep the kayfabe alive between shows, indie wrestlers shoot promos on their iPhones, morphing into character at home and delivering messages to their opponents, but really to their fans. The videos walk the line between fact and fantasy. Wrestlers recount the injustice of the last encounter and promise revenge, often drawing on stories from their real lives to prove their grit. It's a work shoot. Art imitating life. They read like Shakespearean monologues for the social media set. In one, Rachel films from inside the wooden shed in their backyard. A shadowy Jamie appears through the window. Ryan Murdoch, you say you're going to introduce me to violence? Each word is wrapped in breathy vulnerability. He rocks back and forth. I'm very comfortable with violence. See, violence is when your daddy hits your mama. He smashes a glass window pane with a hammer. Violence is when your mama beats you because she's drunk and doesn't want to leave the party. More shattered glass. Violence is when you attempt suicide because you'd rather live an eternity in hell than another minute on this planet another pain. He bends down, looks at the camera through the broken window. Ryan, you have no idea what real violence is. Here's Will Alford, writing about an uncomfortable situation at a beach house. Sean was an orange, incredible Hulk, a wannabe competitive bodybuilder with 80s heavy metal band hair and a handlebar mustache. He sunbathed in a fluorescent string bikini, hoping his freckles would merge into a tan. He was so bulked up that regular clothes didn't fit, so he mostly strutted around wearing nothing but baggy gym shorts. We were never formally introduced. I showed up to the low-rise Cinderblock Beach House where my dad sometimes lived since my parents divorced, for a weekend break from college, and found my room occupied. Garbage bags full of Sean's stuff were piled carelessly on the bed. Souring towels and fitness magazines covered the floor. Hair clippings and used disposable razors littered the bathroom. Columns of store-brand tuna cans, canisters of protein powder, and drums of olive oil crowded the kitchen counter. I later learned he was a stripper not much older than me, and my dad was his most generous patron. We instantly loathed each other. I'd gotten no warning, and I somehow understood not to ask. We'd pretend everything was normal, like always. When my mother or grandmother called, 
I instinctively knew not to mention the gorilla in our midst. And I had a new secret roommate of my own, my first boyfriend, who I was excited to show the place that was so special to me in childhood. Now he was on an air mattress in the living room next to me on the sofa. In and out of sleep, I heard my dad leave for work around daybreak. A short time later, Sean was standing over me, saying my name. He'd just gotten home from partying all night and had met someone who wanted to say hello. She was a girl I recognized from high school, and we mumbled awkward greetings. Then they continued to the back of the house. I dozed, but was aware of them. Shower on, shower off, giggling, low talking. When I thought I heard them having sex, I lifted my head and looked down to see that my boyfriend was wide awake. Just then, the girl screamed my name. She ran out in her bra and panties, pleading for me to help her. Sean emerged and in one swoop reached out and grabbed her with his giant paw and threw her across the room. She scrambled to the front door and wailed as she escaped into the street. Sean said that if I called my dad, he would kill me. I said I was calling the police. On a rampage, he charged out after her. In this moment, I had no inkling that Sean was more than a temporary lapse in my dad's judgment, nor that the boy I'd brought to the beach would stay by my side for 20 years, despite what happened next. I used the cordless phone to call my dad at work. Without any hint of alarm, he asked me to pass the phone to Sean. This is all normal, right? So I went out on the porch and yelled for him, more annoyed than afraid. Turning to go back inside, I saw my boyfriend hastily putting his bag into his hatchback, which was still wet with morning dew. Where are you going? I asked, surprised, as if this would blow over and we could still have a nice time. He was shaking. With the roiling Gulf of Mexico in front of us, a wave of humiliation crushed me and dragged me under for a long time. And now, Sierra Williams drives us through the small town of Cahutta, Georgia, where her family sought a fresh start. I bear traveling north, away from downtown Cahutta on Red Clay Road. The straight and narrow, like our city's temperament. The pavement stretches out here for one mile, isolated by cow pastures and distance in every direction. It's a road for the punctually impaired and the drag racers and the tractor drivers, a place where teenage boys channel Evil Knievel for 30 seconds, knowing they'll never get the glory, but they do it anyway. Police officers can't hide here, so speed. Speed along that dotted yellow line until it unites, meander beyond the fish hatchery and the old schoolyard, beyond Red Clay Resort, way out, beyond those back roads into a dense green wilderness. And when you're done, do it again, and look closer the next time. Red Clay Road began for me one day in 2006 when the leaves had fallen and the world seemed quieter and just right, and everyone else longed for a distant summer. A few towns over from Cahutta, my brother and I waited in the back seat of our mom's minivan as she loaded boxes and small furniture onto the utility trailer behind us. She fished through one of the last boxes and got in the van, heading for the highway. You can play this, 
for now, she said, passing a Game Boy back to Morgan. An animated world made the most sense to my five-year-old brother. His face remained buried in his video game, and I gazed out the back window until our old life disappeared on the horizon. We left behind the commonality who had bonded the three of us to each other, and we stopped mentioning his name. Mom chose Kahuta for our fresh start because it's a family place. It's quiet, and it doesn't have any bars, though we would find out that the town has plenty of alcoholics. I remember first pulling onto Red Clay Road, and the house was yellow, and the yard appeared vast and green like the roof, and in the distance, cattle grazed on a hillside facing north. Herd animals can gauge the earth's magnetic field, and they align themselves to match it. The cows on the hill felt the earth's pull. They knew their place. If one cow escapes, they can all escape, a farmer said. It just takes one broken piece of fence, and you've got yourself a dangerous, expensive mess. It's rare, but some cows don't know their place. They can't process their environment or stick with the herd. I saw this happen a handful of times over the years in Kahuta, around the larger cow pastures where I learned to drive with my mom in her minivan. I can hear her slapping the dashboard, yelling, Hit the squirrel! Just hit the squirrel! when I had swerved too far and almost crashed into a telephone pole. The scare inspired many spontaneous driving lessons, her unofficial guide to animals and humans. She gave me road skills for woodland creatures, livestock, dead skunks, stray cats and dogs, and stray people. Kahuta had many of them. I mastered avoidance and learned when to offer help. And I always knew when to reciprocate a wave. Everybody waves. It's part of Kahuta's unspoken character club. We know. To wave to our neighbor. To go to church. To cut our grass on Saturday before 5 p.m. To vote and pledge the flag and love our homegrown Marla Maples. It's the city's Mayberry world code. Their words, not mine. That has all 700 of us functioning in a time warp. We don't use traffic lights, and we set our own schedules. They revolve around college football and the high school's social calendar. Excluding the 15 churches, we have three main establishments in town. The elementary school, the United States Post Office, and a gas station out on the highway owned by a man from India who calls himself Mickey. Mickey gets hell for the gas station, all in good fun. But he also gets hell because he's brown and seek. Good old boys see his beard and his turban and they spew anti-Islamic rants at him. Thank you, Mickey, for remembering my name, for asking about my family, for letting me hold your baby. Thank you for grilling me a hot dog in your yard and shooting off fireworks for my family. Thank you for celebrating Independence Day by my side. Comprising most of my neighbors, Good old boys have never knocked on my door, though their wives have, twice, bruised and bleeding, seeking shelter from domestic violence and a way to call 911. After you drive down Red Clay Road, that's it. That's who we are. Follow the road out, and the name will change at the Tennessee state line. A few miles later, 
the road will split, and even with a GPS, you won't be able to tell which direction, the left or the right, continues your route. But like most people, you'll probably turn right. Well, that's wrong. But that's okay, keep going. And coming out of a sharp curve, you'll merge onto Red Clay Road again. You'll see a yellow house with a green roof, and across the street, you'll see a sign that you missed the first time, half of it written in Cherokee. You'll stop driving to get a closer look at the vast green wilderness in front of you, the last seat of the Cherokee National Government, and the beginning of the Trail of Tears. This is what you came here for. When you're ready to leave, take a ride at the sign, and you'll head into downtown Cahutta. At this last intersection on Wolf Street, you'll see a directional pole with no markers, only your location, the center of the universe. Take a left here and Godspeed. You're no longer in our orbit. Our last reader is Stephanie Palladino, recounting a past attraction to a Maya man with beautiful eyelashes. Teresita, all of 10 years old and pushing the boundaries of both early womanhood and acceptable behavior for a Maya child, sidled up to me at the edge of the massive wooden table where I worked on my computer. The deep coffee-colored tabletop was a mahogany slab more than three inches thick and heavy as a bear. It had been skillfully carved with a chainsaw from a rainforest giant that had been felled less than half a mile away in the Lacandon rainforest of southern Mexico. It smelled of wood smoke and cooking grease, especially when it was humid, which is always, except for the two oppressively hot and dusty months of dry season every year. Isandro has beautiful eyelashes, she stage-whispered several inches from my face. I tried hard not to smile at her brazenness and looked first at her and then across the table at Isandro, who peered deep into his own laptop. He gave no sign of hearing. His exceptionally long and dense lashes, which I privately agreed were gorgeous, remained canted downward at the computer, didn't even flicker. Isandro's lashes were wondrous in many ways, and one of them was how they helped to veil his thoughts or feelings at any given moment. Like most Maya I know who are not trying to pass within the mainstream mestizo culture of Mexico, he maintained the respectful distance that unrelated Maya men and women keep between themselves while in the view of others, even when they're married. Girls and boys didn't date here, but instead relied on meaningful looks and not-so-chance encounters in farm fields. When an older man accompanied me one morning to the paved road to show me where to catch the early bus out of town, he walked many paces ahead of or behind me, lest observers think there was some intimacy between us. Shaking hands, sitting next to each other, too much eye contact, these were kashlan ways that were normal between mestizo men and women, but among Maya suggested there was something going on. 
When Isandro accompanied me as an interpreter, most women wouldn't let me interview them in their homes unless their husbands were present, and often not even then. When I first started living and doing research in this remote corner of Mexico, I was 44 and single. Isandro was a little more than half my age, with his third child only a few months old. This code of behavior between the sexes was very much in place, though other ideas and practices were beginning to worm their ways in. The road to the heavily touristed mestizo town of Palenque had been recently paved, and the journey now took only two hot and drowsy hours, instead of a whole day dodging potholes and inching around road washouts. There was a new junior high school, staffed by Kashlan teachers sent by the government, who openly told me their mission was to civilize these indios. They held monthly social dances in the school courtyard, where only the teachers and the occasional visitor danced to cumbias and merengues, while tightly ringed by a dense crowd of townspeople staring at them, the women and little children to one side, the men to another, mostly laughing nervously, but not participating. For a period of over three years, Isandro and I worked intensively together for months at a time. We set out before dawn, walking, biking, or packing ourselves into flatbed trucks with the town's farmers to get to the fields and forests that were kilometers away. We hiked treacherous mountain trails and crossed rivers. We sat in close quarters at tables and desks, poring over transcripts and translations, pressing and identifying plants, strategizing about interviews. We got drenched by the same rains, endured the same mosquitoes. I shot his rifle in the woods. The physical and intellectual proximity meant that other feelings and thoughts were inevitable. It wasn't just his lashes I admired. Isandro seemed to be able to master whatever he set his mind to learning. He was thoughtful and quiet. He had a tendency to smile while he worked, whether it was clearing a hectare of forest with just a machete or entering data into a computer. He'd learned how to maneuver the mestizo world, but it hadn't gone to his head like it had with others. He still moved with humility and respect among his townspeople and elders. I'd done a lot of fieldwork as an unaccompanied woman. I was very good at learning what I needed to do to deserve the trust of women when I interviewed their men and of men when I interviewed their women. I was there to work. I respected marriages. I had ethics. I knew the follies of romanticizing people of other cultures. It never ended in something good. I don't think Isandro and I ever touched, except for a surprise goodbye hug when my research was finishing right there in the center of town. Nor did we ever say words that even hinted at the possibility of physical or emotional closeness. We maintained the Maya distance of respect between us, even as we got to know each other in ways that were so rich and so rare, given the differences in our life experiences.
Instead, some nights, on my rickety cot under the mosquito net, in a fuzzy state of half-waking, half-dreaming consciousness, I sometimes drifted through scenarios where Isandra and I would get caught up in circumstances beyond our control that forced us into closeness, despite our intentions otherwise. Maybe one of us got injured on the mountainside and had to be carried out. Or we were stranded overnight in the woods and forced to huddle together for warmth. They were impossibly innocent fantasies that allowed us each to be absolved of any blame or consequences. Later, when I was no longer living there, Isandro mentioned he sometimes had dreams where we were doing stuff together. He never said what we were doing. I didn't ask. Isandro is now the age I was when we first met, and a grandfather four times over. Time and age have made so many veils unnecessary. The lashes are mostly up, rarely down. Isandro and I have kept a special bond and the dignity of our relationship across the decades. Thanks to all the MFA writers for sharing their stories with us. To learn more about Hearthell and the low-residency MFA and narrative nonfiction, type the following into your browser, bit.ly slash Podcast. That's bit.ly slash Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite platform and leave a review on iTunes if you're so inclined. It would mean a lot. We're on all the social apps as well, at Hearthell Podcast. We'd love to hear from you there. Hearthell will be back soon with another true story. Take a good look in their eyes Take a good look in their eyes Take a good look in the eyes